Amen. I am going to dismiss our kids this morning. One of my, the most exciting parts of my Sunday mornings is fist bumping you guys on your way out, and I will not be able to get to do this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. As you guys get out of there. You guys are going to miss the best sermon ever. I'm kidding. Good morning. I love worship together, like with you guys. I love listening to our kids sing and shout it out. It's always exciting when our kids like know a song, you know, and you can really tell like they amplify our volume like tenfold. I, I miss it when they, when they leave and I love it when they know our songs. This morning we are going to continue on in our series, uh, The Story. And as cheery and delightful and great as our worship just was, we're actually going to jump in the part of the story uh, where the Israelites are in not such a great place. I'm going to read from Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel... The further they went from me, they sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? Will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, he will, not, he will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man. The Holy One among you, I will not come in wrath. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Father God. We come before you this morning, and our desire, above all, is that, is that you would speak to us, God. That from your word that, that has been spoken and taught and preached for thousands of years, that you would speak anew to us this morning. We thank you, God, that, that you're a God who, who, who allows us to identify you as Father. We thank you that, that you're a God who is very present with us, not because we beg for you to be present, but because you desire to be present with us. And as we turn our attention and our gaze to you and your word this morning, would you speak to your children, God? It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen, amen. Do you have somebody in your life that is willing to call you out? Like if you're walking around in public with a booger hanging from your nose, 
Is there somebody in your life that's willing to give you like the little like, you know, like that little kind of flicker like, hey, you got to go to the bathroom and you got to work that out. Is there somebody in your life that as you're walking outside in this like new, cool, stylish outfit, so you think, as you walk out, is there somebody in your life that's willing to say just like, you might want to change, you know, it doesn't exactly fit. The other day, this, I, I have a couple of people like this in my life. My, my brothers love to do this to me all the time. I am not fashionable. I'm not hip. If you ever see clothes that I'm wearing that are fashionable, it's not because I bought them. It's because I stole them from my brothers. They're really into fashion. And so the other day, I, I got my haircut like this right here. And my brother, he goes, you do realize that nobody cuts their hair like that anymore, don't you? And I was like, whoa. And he's like, well, I mean, people do, but not cool people. And I'm like, wow, this is unbelievable. Is there somebody in your life that is willing to enter into that space of uncomfort to call you out? But what about, what about more serious things other than things hanging from our nose or bad haircuts? Is somebody in your life, do you have somebody in your life willing to call you out about your character? Is there somebody that might overhear you talking about another person that will kind of pull you aside and say, hey, gossip, that's not good. You probably shouldn't be doing that. Is there somebody in your life that might hear you speak to your child in a certain way that might pull you aside and say, you shouldn't talk to your kid like that, man. You see, it's really difficult to have people like that in our lives because it's a really uncomfortable, awkward space to enter into with another person. It's usually met with like defensiveness, aggression, right? Because none of us like to be called out. And so people tend not to call us out. Where we find ourselves in the story this morning is we find that there are these people that are beginning to rise up in the nation of Israel that are beginning to call them out. And it's not about superficial things like, hey, I think that instead of building like a golden altar, we should have some silver altar, right? It's like not these superficial things. Is that there's these people in Israel, we call them prophets, who are beginning to call out Israel in very personal, uncomfortable things about their character and about what they're worshiping and their religion and how they choose to live their lives. You see, when I say the word prophets, there's all sorts of images that might come to our minds, right? Fortune tellers, loners, Soapbox preachers, angry people. And certainly there, there are different prophets in the Old Testament. As they come to us uh, in different ways and places. But the common thing that they all hold is that they're, they're all messengers from God. And they're all coming into Israel. God sends these people into Israel to call them out. At the very beginning of the story, our series, we, we talked about how there, there's kind of two different stories going on throughout this whole thing. You have this sort of upper story, God's intentions and God's purposes for creation, which are good, right? He creates the world. And then you have this like sort of lower story, like kind of actually how that is being all played out. And so God's intentions in this sort of upper story is that creation would be good three chapters later, this is a lower story. People are like, that fruit looks nice. I'm going to eat it, right? And then a chapter later, it's like, I hate my brother, right? And it's like you have these two different things going on in Scripture. And as this upper story, God's intentions for his people and for his creation, 
and this lower story of what actually is going on begin to separate more and more the prophets of Israel, that they take on a bigger and more significant role than ever before. And this morning we find ourselves in a place where this is just way far apart. If you remember, um, there was a, a prophet several weeks ago uh, that, that called out David. You remember the story of David where, where he sees Bathsheba, they have a child together, he tries to, you know, he doesn't try. He, he has his, her husband killed in order to cover it up. And, and there's this really, uh, there's a prophet by the name of Nathan who comes and he confronts David and says, what you did was evil, it was wrong. This is the role of prophets. But a few generations later after David, David is not the prototypical king of Israel. That sort of righteous man whose whose heart is after God alone with some few blips on the radar screen. Like really big blips. I don't know what you would call those, right? But David is still understood as a righteous king. A few generations later, the opposite has become true about the kings of Israel. They're actually the norm is that they would be evil and do wrong. And they may have a few blips along the way that says, oh, we did something good. But we're at this point in the story where the kings of Israel are entirely corrupt and broken. A few weeks ago, we discover that Solomon begins, as he is king, to marry foreign wives. And as a result, begins to worship foreign gods. This practice continues in Israel. And in fact, just a few kings later in the northern kingdom, we discover that these kings are no longer just marrying foreign wives and worshiping their gods. They're beginning to resurrect statues and temples in order for the people to come and worship. There's idols, golden calves in the northern kingdom that the people are worshiping. One such king, King Ahab, is probably described in Scripture. I would hate to have this title in Scripture. It's like, he's the most evil king ever in Israel. This is Ahab. This is the guy that we're going to jump in and study a little bit about this morning. And you may have not heard Ahab, but you certainly have heard of his wife, Jezebel, right? If someone ever called you a Jezebel, ladies, that is not a compliment of beauty or it's, it's, it's a horrible thing to be called a Jezebel. <laughs> But Ahab marries Jezebel, and Jezebel is a foreign woman, and the God that she worships, her people worship, is the God of Baal. And as a result, Ahab and the Israelites in the northern kingdom, they begin to worship the God of Baal. And their worship of this God leads to perhaps the most famous confrontation between prophet and king in the history of Israel. Elijah jumps onto the scene. Have you ever had, like, one of those friends that, like, when they enter a room, it's like you know that they're there? Like, they come into the room and they announce, like, hey, like, I'm here. There are a couple kids in the youth group who will remain anonymous that, like, when they enter into a room, it's like you know. Like, they're like, hey, I'm here. Elijah kind of does this to us in scriptures. Elijah, we know nothing sort of about his background, but he jumps onto the scene, and, and the first thing that we see is his confrontation with Ahab, the king of the northern, in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he goes to Ahab and he says this, listen, it's not going to rain again until I say it's going to rain. That's what God said because of your false worship. And then he just walks away. He's like, whoa, this is crazy. And so because of their worship, God decides that that it's not going to rain in Israel for three years. Now, we currently in today's, we know what it's like not to have rain, right? And I hope you, like me, you're doing your part in fighting the drought. I shower like once a week, and I, 
flush my toilet like once a week. I'm kidding about the toilet. But the shower, <laughs> I'm doing my part. I, I told Paige the other day, I was like, I'm doing my part. I shower every other day, you know, like I want to conserve and I try and, you know, right? But drought is not a good thing. But in Israel, the drought that Elijah kind of uh, gets going, it, it isn't something that lasts for a few months or a year. It lasts three years. Now, even in the last year here in California, we've had some rain, right? Can you imagine what it would be like to have no rain for three years? And, and this is not the age of technology where they're able to, like, take water from different places and bring it, right, in order to suit people's needs. It's people's lives literally depend on the rain is they need it to grow their food in a very literal way. And so this drought, just drought is more than just, oh, yeah, I'm going to shower less. It's, wow, I don't know if I'm going to be able to eat in a year from now or in a few months from now. Now, it would be easy for us to think that the way that God decides to distribute these punishments or consequences to Israel is like he has this sort of like, prize wheel that he spins, right? And it's like, flood, right? And like God is up in heaven like doing this thing. Wilderness, right? Like God doesn't do this thing. In fact, God doesn't send this drought into Israel simply for the fact to punish Israel. You see, the God of Baal, which doesn't come to us in scripture, but If you understand, historically, the God of Baal was a God who was supposed to be the God of storms, the God of rain, the God of fertility, the God, essentially, of life. And and so Elijah's proclamation to the Israelites that it's it's not going to rain until I say so, and that there's a drought for three years, isn't just a simple, like, shame on you, I'm putting you in the corner for a while because of what you did. It's, It's a demonstration To say, let's look at Baal and what you think he can do for you, and then we'll look at the one true God and what he can do for you. So after three years, no rain in Israel. Elijah goes back to Ahab, and he has a proposition for him to try and determine who is the one true God, Baal or Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says to Ahab, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go up a mountain. We're going to build an altar. We're going to offer a sacrifice. Then You'll take all the prophets of Baal, all 450 of them, and they'll pray to Baal and see if their God, if Baal will send down fire from heaven, and then I'll do the same. And whoever's God sends fire from heaven, you know, that is the one true God. And I hear that story, I'm like, that's crazy. Can you imagine if we did that? Like, Republicans, we're going to go here, Democrats over here, and you're going to get your best talker, we're going to get our best talker, and whoever filibusters the longest without passing out wins, right? Like, this is an insane way to determine who's right and who's wrong, but this is what they do. And, and the people of Israel, they're like, okay, that, that sounds good, that's a great idea. And so they go up to the mountain, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 other false prophets. So you have 850 false prophets to the one prophet of Yahweh. They build altars. Elijah says, coin flip, you go first. The prophets of Baal, they build their altar and they start praying to the God. They go, God, you send down fire from heaven. And they do this all morning long, nothing happens. They get about in early afternoon and Elijah begins to mock them like, maybe, maybe he's on a bathroom break. Like, literally, Elijah says this to them. Like, you could read it in scriptures. Right? Maybe he's just, you know, busy doing something else right now. You should shout louder. 
And so the prophets of Baal, they begin to shout and pray louder. They begin to even cut themselves. It was a form of worship to, to, to declare to Baal, like, we want you to come here now. And scripture says it so clearly and plainly. It says, no one answered. No one paid attention. So Elijah's turn. Step up. Nothing happened. No fire from heaven. Elijah is going to pray. But before he does, he says, we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to have a bunch of you dig a trench around my altar. So a bunch of the people are there. They dig a trench. And he says, now what I want you to do is I want you to take water. And I want you to soak it all over the altar, all over the sacrifice, everything. And they soak it so much that the trench that they had dug fills to the brim with water. And either Elijah's brilliant and he's saying, if I... If, if this doesn't work out, I can just say, well, it was soaked in water, right? Or he's making it more difficult for himself. And then Elijah prays a simple prayer after the people do this. He says, answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God. And that you are turning their hearts back again. Fire comes down from heaven. Boom, altar, sacrifice, goes up in flames. The people return. Oh, yeah, God. He is the one true God for sure. If you read a few chapters later, though, after this very real experience, I mean, the people literally experienced God, right? They walked up the mountain. They sweat. They built the altar. They drenched it with water. They watched the fire miraculously come down from heaven. They feel the heat coming off of it, burning the altar and sacrifice. This is a very real experience of God. And a few chapters later, they're worshiping Baal again. You see, for the, the, the Israelites at this time, the, the, the confrontation, the proposition to see who is the one true God wasn't to determine who, which God should be worshipped alone. For them, it was like, well, who's going to bring us rain? Which God is going to give us what we want? But we're going to continue to worship the God that we desire. Now, most of us, we would not say that we have idols like Baal, that we worship. We certainly do have lesser gods that we worship, don't we? I was, um, this week, I was, this past weekend, I, I was at the Santa Barbara Mission Conference, which was a really cool experience. Uh, this guy, Shane Claiborne, speaking there, and the president of Fuller Seminary, woo -woo, was speaking there. And I found out that Rolf is actually a really big deal. <laughs> he was one of the workshop speakers, and I read his bio, and you would think that he was running the country. It was crazy. <laughs> He's a really, really big deal. But I didn't go to his workshop. So, um, <laughs> um, so I was there, and, and uh, uh, yesterday morning, Saturday morning, the president of Fuller Seminary, uh, Mark Laberton, he, he is a plenary speaker for our general session, and, and he, he does a sermon on, on worship, and I was like, Dang it, I'm speaking on worship tomorrow. Rolf is going to know if I steal something from him. So I just, just you know, uh, full confession. I, 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 there was something that, that he said in his, in his sermon or in his, his um, address that, that really rung true to me about what worship is. He said, uh, and I put my own kind of twist on it. He said, worship is reflecting the thing of ultimate importance to us in our lives is that worship is a reflection of whatever is the most important thing to us. 
You see, we in the church, we often associate worship with singing. And certainly that is a form of worship. God is beautiful. God has saved. And so we sing beautiful songs and we declare the things that he has done to save his people. But worship is so much more than that. It's not a Sunday activity. It's this expression of worship in our lives that is supposed to be lived out Monday through Sunday. Reflecting God into the world. That is the goal of Christian worship. And this is why Israel's worship of Baal netted them nothing, right? No one answered, no one heard there's drought. As you're worshiping something that is nothing, the thing that's reflected and mirrored out into your world is nothing. I have a friend who, uh, I have more than one friend, but I have a friend, his, um, his name is Chris, and Chris goes to a church in Newport Beach. And Newport Beach, if, if you don't know, it's this sort of like, really wealthy area of Orange County, of like South Orange County. It's kind of like Santa Barbara in Orange County, but not quite as nice as Santa Barbara, you know? Like, we are much more elite than them over there in Newport <laughs> Beach. Way more celebrities and money up here. No, but my friend Chris, he goes to a church in Newport Beach, and, and uh, about a month ago, we were having a conversation about his congregation. And he began to just tell me a little bit about... Um, how wealthy, just to what extent their church is just rich. I mean, rich, rich. He told me, like, what their budget was. I'm not going to share it with you, but he told me. What, and I was just like, oh, that is an ungodly amount of money to have as a budget. And I, 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 as we're having this conversation, I was like, what do people in your church do? And he said, well, you know, like, um, there's one guy who, you know the Guggenheim partners that bought the Dodgers for like over $2 billion? I was like, yeah, he like works for like the Guggenheim partners, like a VP. And he's like, no, he, he is a Guggenheim. And I was like, what? This is insane. They're just, they're loaded. And, and he said, he's in a men's group with a lot of these, a lot of these guys. And he said, he, he seeks out a lot of counsel because he's a young dad. He has... Uh, like a 10-month-old and uh, I think a three-and-a-half-year-old. And so he seeks a lot of guidance and wisdom from other men in his church. And so he's in this men's group trying to solicit some advice and some things that are going on in his marriage and in, in his family. And one of the guys, he says, speaks up and, and tells him, you know, I, I hate to, to be a sort of, I don't know, Debbie Downer maybe of the group, but I'm not the guy that you should probably get a, be getting advice from. Chris was like, why? What do you mean? You seem like you have a really solid, good family. And he said, well, you see, uh, I might have a pretty good family and marriage now, but this is like my second go around. He said, my first marriage, uh, all I cared about was in my life was money, success, and making it to the top of my career. I wanted to get to the top. So he said, instead of Taking my wife out on dates, I would take clients out for drinks. And instead of going to my kids' sporting events, I would spend extra hours in the office working. He said, you see, like for me, the most important thing in my life was my career, success, financial gain. And it totally wrecked and ruined my first marriage. And my relationship with my kids is just not there. And I, I'm constantly feeling like I have to rebuild, try and reconnect with my son. And he said, what was really weird about this conversation was Chris said, almost every other man that was in the group echoed the same exact sentiments. 
when we were young, the things that we pursued more than anything was wealth and our careers. And they made it. They made it to the top of their careers. They, they have extreme wealth. You see, they were worshiping this lesser God of materialism and wealth. And what happens as you worship other gods, they begin to reflect into your life. We know this, right? We know that, that if there is somebody who the most important thing in their life to them is their career and money, that's going to come out in your marriage. You're going to hear statements like, I feel like I'm not a priority anymore. You're going to, get, you're going to field questions like, Dad, why, why don't you come to my games? And eventually, over time, that is going to play itself out in your life in a destructive way. What do you worship? What is the thing of ultimate importance in your life? How is it being reflected into your world? We as a church, we, not we, but like corporately, the universal church in America, uh, we have worshipped things other than Yahweh. And it's beginning to reflect itself out into our world. There was a Barna study, pretty famous study that you may have heard before. It was published several years ago about what non-Christians think about Christians. Pretty good indication to see what it is we're worshiping by determining what people see us reflecting into the world. Three, the top three things I'll just kind of go through. Anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical. You see, we have long worshipped dogma in the church. We have long worshipped having the position of rightness and everybody else being wrong. We have long worshipped at the feet uh, of politics in America. But you see, the thing that the church should be worshipping is at the feet of the one who said, they will know you are my disciples by your love. we have often forgotten in the church is that the thing that we worship is God and nothing less than that. See, we often in our lives, whether it be religiously or material wealth or our own selves even, worship or we worship a lesser God than the one true God. You see, God's desire in this sort of upper story is that he would be able to bless his creation. That he would be able to have unbroken relationship with them. But the one thing he asks that we participate in this lower story is that we would worship him alone. And through Elijah, we see the lengths to which God is willing to demonstrate to his people. I am worthy of your worship, your only worship. And it's later on in the prophet Hosea from the book that we read this morning that we see God's response to his people when they reject him as their God, when they reject him as a sole focus of their worship. Hosea is a a really interesting prophet. Um, Like I said, some prophets, they they do things with their words, and, and other times there are prophets where God instructs them, I want you to communicate with your life. And God instructs Hosea, a prophet, uh, to do a really, probably one of the strangest, like if, it was, if I had a list of the weirdest things that happen in scripture, this might be at the top. Like talking donkey would even be below it, right? Where God instructs Jose, he says, I want you to marry a prostitute. 
And this isn't like Julia Roberts and Pretty Woman kind of prostitute. Like, this is not a love story like that. He tells Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. And if you're Hosea at this point in time, you're probably like, that's kind of weird. Um, but, you know, I, I guess I'll do that. Can you imagine if, if God told me, like, Aaron, I want you to go marry a prostitute? Like, you would think, you're crazy. Like, God doesn't tell people to do that, but God does it in this story. But then God tells Hosea to marry a particular prostitute, a prostitute by the name of Gomer. And if I would have discovered that, I'd have been like, the prostitute thing I can do, God, but my wife's name being Gomer, I'm out, right? <laughs> That's not happening right now. But Hosea goes and he marries this prostitute named Gomer. And unlike Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, she, she doesn't live a faithful life where she kind of falls in love with her husband and it's this wonderful, beautiful story. See, Gomer continues to be a prostitute even when they're married. She goes and solicits herself to other men, and she's sleeping around with other guys in the community. If you've ever been in relationship with somebody and there's been unfaithfulness, you know, like, the devastation that comes with that. Just crazy pain. And God tells Hosea to do this, to demonstrate to the people of Israel what they do to him when they begin to worship other gods. But then we see God's response in Hosea's life to unfaithful people. After Gomer goes and, you know, is sleeping with other men, Hosea is instructed to go pursue his wife again. And so you see, there's this story where Hosea is kind of going through the city trying to find his wife, and he finally finds her in the home of another man, brings him back to his house, and says to her, I want you to live with me. I'm not angry, but I'm going to ask you that you just not do that anymore. And it's this story of God, his relationship with us. Sometimes we get in our minds that there's a sense of unfaithfulness that we can have with God that kind of will ultimately break that relationship and he'll stop pursuing us. But God constantly and forever will pursue his people. And the call will always be the same. Would you come home and be with me and not do that anymore? I, uh, when I was in college, I had to go to chapel three times a week at Mount Vernon, which was a joy when I was sleeping most of the time. But there was this one, there was this one speaker that came in. His name was Dennis Kinlaw. He was a seminary professor uh, in, at Asbury Theological Seminary and. Just this really great guy. He was old. He was like 87 or something like that. And he came. And when you see an 87-year-old in a college campus come to speak, you think like, this is not happening. Like, he cannot connect with me. I'm 19 years old. And, And Dennis Kinlaw, he was at our school for about three or four days, and he spoke twice a day. And it's probably the only chapels that I actually remember about my time at Mount Vernon. And I remember this one particular story that he told about uh, his wife and their courtship. It was really interesting. His wife had died a couple years uh, prior to this, uh, um, his speaking at our school. And he says, you know, the weirdest thing is the way that you 19-year-olds feel about your romance right now, I felt that with my wife before she died. It was so good. 
And he began to tell us his story about their courtship and their dating. And he said, you know, my wife, one, she was way better of a person, holier Christian than I ever was. And, and she saw that I had shortcomings and she saw that I had flaws. And yet what she was looking for was not somebody who was perfect because it doesn't exist. But what she was looking for was for somebody whose heart was undivided when it came to her. Uh, that, that the person that she wanted to marry was a man whose heart solely and wholly belonged to her. He said, you know what the strange thing about it is? I was looking for the same thing. And he said, uh, we got married and, and, and we had our differences and we were trying to work on our problems and our issues and the character flaws and we made very little progress, you know, in like 65 years. But he said, all 65 years, our hearts were wholly given to one another. They were undivided. There's no rival trying to pull us in another direction. This is what God desires of his people. That's what it looks like to worship. Is holy and entirely desire God above everything else. There's no rivals to it. And as we do as a church, as we do as Christians, we, we will begin to mirror and reflect Christ into the world. The love, the peace, the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness, kindness, goodness. This is the desire of our worship. This is what our worship should look like on a daily basis in our marriages, our relationships with our kids, with our co-workers. It's all worship. It's trying to reflect God into the world and only Him. John Wesley, who has uh, a big influence on our denomination, he and his brother Charles, uh, they, they preached a lot, but they also wrote a lot of songs, a hymnal that we never touched that's here. A lot of it is filled with songs that they wrote. And I just want to close this morning um, with a stanza that, they, that he wrote that I, that I feel like really gets at this thing of what it looks like to worship God with an undivided heart. He writes, is there a thing beneath the sun that strives with thee my heart to share? Ah, tear it thence and reign alone, the Lord of every motion there. I don't know if, if you find yourself in a place where there's these things in your life that are trying to get at your heart, trying to pull you in a direction that you just need to spend some time praying to God about. Like, I want you to reign alone. There's this other thing that's, that's holding on to me, trying to grab at my heart, and I want you to have it alone. But a reminder that we get from the story of Israel, from the song here that Wesley wrote, God wants our hearts undivided. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we want to be people with undivided hearts. We recognize that you are the one true God, the only being worthy of worship. And so we ask, God, that you would make clear in our minds those things that are kind of pulling at us in this moment, that thing that, that we, we so often place in front of you, 
We ask that you would give us the wisdom to see it and the strength and courage to get rid of it in our lives. To make you the sole focus of our worship, God. We thank you that you embrace us in our brokenness and in our filth. That you never cease, you never relent to to call us back into relationship with you, God. We thank you for your gospel and what it is you declare to your creation through it. We love you, God. We want to love you wholly and entirely. No rivals or competitors. It's in Christ's name.